Soon, children everywhere will be saying goodbye to their parents and to their communities and the times and the places that made them into the adults they're on their way to becoming in college. Some of them will do a bit better at handling the distance, both in terms of time and geography, than others. Well, they're certainly not alone, and they aren't alone throughout the history of this country when you consider the countless ways that giant groups of people have moved from the familiar to the unfamiliar. My guest today wrote the book on the matter of homesickness, and I'm thrilled to talk to Dr. Susan Matt, Presidential Distinguished Professor of History at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. Happy summer. I'm Davin Sweeney, a college counselor at CollegeWise who talks to very learned types of folks who have all kinds of things to say about college and college admissions and sometimes things that are tangentially yet sort of critically involved like today's topic of homesickness, which is certainly something that a lot of us and particularly most college freshmen need to wrestle with at some point or another. But first... Subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and wherever else you're listening to this. And if they have subscribing and rating available, let those folks who come after you know that this is actually not a waste of time. Thanks. So I read this book when it came out in 2011, and I just thought it was such a fascinating way to think about American history through all the different ways we've moved and left the familiar Men going to civil and world wars, people stolen from Africa and brought as slaves to this country, the great migration of these African Americans out of the Jim Crow South to a similarly inhospitable North, the urbanization of our economy as people left the countryside for cities, the millions and millions of immigrants leaving their homelands abroad to start anew here in this country, and the displacement of Native Americans from their homelands and placement into reservations and schools, banning them from speaking their native tongues and forcing them into Christianity. So yeah, there are things in our history that have caused homesickness that are a smidge weightier than going away to college. Yes, it is cold comfort to tell a homesick college freshman, buck up, at least you're not in Quezon. But it doesn't hurt to remember these kinds of things, and that homesickness is not just normal, but that it has a pretty extensive and fascinating tradition in this country. So where did all this come from, and how does nostalgia play a role in it all? How is this an American phenomenon, or at least what American things happen to contribute to homesickness and nostalgia being woven into our national fabric and story? What about the role of technology nowadays, making it insanely easy to stay in touch with home, or its ability to make one's experiences seem outwardly perfect via Instagram and other social media tools? So I try to cram all of this stuff into the short hour that we have together. So here's my conversation with Dr. Susan Matt. Hey, is this Dr. Matt? Hi, yeah, it's Susan. How are you? All right, Susan, it's Davin. Good to hear you. Good to hear you, too. Uh, I never, you know, know how quite to to uh, address professors. My wife has achieved that uh, milestone, and uh, <laughs> she's obviously allowed to demand that I call her that. She doesn't. Yes, but. and I'm sure you, you do all the time in the kitchen and the, yeah. <laughs> yes, especially opportune moments that are not at all sarcastic. <laughs> Right? I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm I think I'm okay. Good. So far I'm fine. How's where, where are you? Are you on campus? 
I am in my office on campus because it's the last place with the landline. Oh yeah, right. I remember those. <laughs> Thank you for. I think the sound. Well, the sound quality, I assume, is better. It sounds great. Well, not only the sound quality, but the reliability of. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that part is always a pain in the butt. <laughs> I'm sure, and I, uh, in my protest against the digital age, I still have a flip phone, which makes it even worse. Oh, good. So that must be yeah. really fun when people send you all kinds of like things that don't work on your flip phone. I get lots of squares for emojis. They're just squares. So, yeah. whereas mine are handcrafted artisanal oh, emojis. Oh man! Oh, yeah. that's yeah, that's perfect. Well, like the good old days, right? When you had to actually use, you know, the characters on the keyboard to kind of create. Yeah, I'm, I still use my colon and my parentheses. So. Well, I mean, you do. I've, I looked a little bit at your CV, and you've done a lot of work on, you know, the the on technology, the digital age, emotions. I think you've got a presentation on your hands here. <laughs> I've been thinking emoticon may be the next frontier. All right, cool. So. Well, um, let me know when it happens. You okay, are, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a homesick emoticon that I know of. There probably is, but a homesick emoticon. Well, there's there's a challenge um, for <laughs> for those listening to come up with one. Where so you're on campus there at Weber State. I am. And how did you end up there? This is by the way. I'm from Portland, Oregon, so of course this is uh, my favorite Portland Trailblazer. Damian Lillard went there for a few yes, years. Yes, indeed. He left at tw- in 2012. Was he in any of your classes? He wasn't. He was in many of my colleagues and gave a shout out at graduation. No way. So that was that was very nice. Uh, Not to me, but to my friend. So uh, that's fantastic. Yes. Well, so. great. Yeah. I mean, I um, go Wildcats, right? <laughs> Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and how? Yeah. Thank so, I mean, and you've got uh, you've got quite a, um, a. I would imagine. I mean, and as I understand, as I said before, my wife's a professor, so I understand that you know pathways in academia are are, are winding to say the least. How did you end up at Weber State? So I went to uh, grad school at Cornell, and there I met my um, husband and co-author Luke Fernandez. Um, uh, who was in the political science department, and he was in love with mountains. So we applied to Western schools with the hope of being close to a mountain, and our university is actually on a mountain. So yeah, you nailed it. I don't it. think we could <laughs> Yeah, we couldn't have gotten any closer. Um, <laughs> so I'm originally from the Midwest but uh, and didn't really get mountains till I moved out here, and now I do. Yes, so. well, the it's hard to you know, understand something when there's just nothing but the absence of it, right? That's right. uh, A lot of flat. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Um, Well, that's really cool. And um, I, yeah, we had our our national conference was out in in, uh, Salt Lake City not a while ago. And uh, being from Oregon, I have a a fondness for the mountains in that range uh, myself too. So um, Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a great place. What kind of students go there? It's an open admissions university, um, so we have a broad range. We have a lot of first-generation students, um, and we also have uh, a lot of students who come in um, with um, uh, terrific scholarships, uh, which keep a lot of our local uh, populations coming to the university because our our admission, or sorry, our um, tuition is very low. It's like I don't know four or five thousand dollars in state and maybe double that out of state that's um, basically free i think for most people uh who are yeah at the cost yeah of, yeah and then they they um you know give generous scholarships to lure out of state folk as well and that's becoming an increasing priority um, yeah. as well because the 
you know, we think with the recreational opportunities of uh, the Olympic venue ski resort right behind the mount, uh, right behind the university, um, it should be attracting people from afar. So, I, I haven't been there myself. I'd love, love to go and check it out one day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, you should. And in my my current vocation as a college counselor, we're always in the in in the uh, uh, the mode of of trying to encourage people to think about colleges that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise considered. So, um, do you teach undergrads? I teach undergrads. Um, there are some grad grad programs as well, but not in history. We decided we wanted to keep it more of a liberal arts college experience mm-hmm. for our students. So it's exclusively um, undergrads. We've got. Uh, terrific history majors. Um, some of them go on to law school. Some of them go on to grad school. We've gotten people into Duke, Cornell, Yale. Um, so, uh, you know, Weber State may not be the most famous place on earth, but it opens doors to those places. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested in talking to you today because I after your your book came out, which is called Homesickness: An American History, I read a review of it. I think in the New York Times. Um, and uh, and then picked it up and and devoured it and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um, well, thank you. Well, thank you for writing it, uh, and I hope more people read it. It is you know a pretty exhaustive look at the topic, which I think is I don't know you know it's one of these things that you take for granted, but you know when you step back and you look at it, you realize that there are a lot of factors that influence the phenomenon that. Um, you know, you hadn't really considered before, and uh, which is uh, hopefully what <laughs> what what all teachers and writers are doing with the topic. Uh, you hope, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I have a lot of questions. I have a, too many questions, I'm sure, but um, but I want to I want to dive in here and just make sure that the first thing we do here is that we kind of define terms. So you talk about homesickness, and you also talk about nostalgia, and I want to understand the difference between those two things. Okay, well, originally they were the same thing. Today we think of nostalgia as meaning a longing for a lost time, um, a longing for the past. But originally, uh, when the word was coined uh, in 1688, it meant a longing for a place you wanted to return to. And it sounds like an old word, but it was actually created by this young Swiss doctor who put together Greek words to um, create the word nostalgia. And he used it... um, to label a new, uh, what he thought was a new illness that he was seeing um, among uh, young people who were traveling from one city in Switzerland to another. And those people um, in their late teens, early 20s, seemed to be um, falling ill as they thought more and more about home and the places they left behind. So he coined the word nostalgia um, to talk about their symptoms. And to him, it was a physical condition as well as a set of feelings. And and we draw more lines between this today um, in modern psychology and modern medicine, but he did not. He thought it was all one condition. Um, And the only known cure for nostalgia really was to return people home. Otherwise, they, um, in his belief, might actually die. Right. It was like a real medical affliction. Yeah, and there are surprising accounts up um, through the early 20th century of people dying of nostalgia. Um, Seriously? So today we, yeah, I mean, uh, it stays in the Surgeon General's list of diseases up until uh, World War II in wow. the U.S. Um, during World War One, only one soldier dies of nostalgia, but during the Civil War, um, dozens of people died of nostalgia, and 5,000 and some in the Union Army um were diagnosed with severe cases of it. What would we um, get, what so, would we diagnose those people with today? Well, 
Um, it might be uh, depression, which comes into uh, you know circulation as a word really in the in the early 20th century. Um, it might be um, anxiety, um, often a, a complicating factor in a lot of these medical cases was that people had things like dysentery. And some doctors believed homesickness caused dysentery. Other people believed homesickness or nostalgia just worsened it. But in either case, sometimes um, they, they thought, you know, it was one disease and sometimes they thought it just, um, uh, what's the word, uh, amplified the the symptoms of another illness. Right. Um, and so the word homesickness, which we use today, um, doesn't really enter the English language until the 18th century. So the word that was circulating in the late 1600s, the 1700s across Europe and in some parts of England um, was nostalgia. And then that's kind of a clunky word for the common user. Yeah. Um, so in the 18th century, homesickness becomes a more common way to express um, express the feeling in this situation. And so as your book kind of takes us through time and history and, and, and brings us to, to modern to the modern day, it seems that, you know, it, it also parallels our collective growth as a society when it comes to, you know, understanding the nature of mental and physical disposition and being a lot more, becoming perhaps a lot more comfortable with calling this sort of what it is, which is, you know, or, or rather it's sort of rooted in a, in a, a better understanding of in particular, sort of maybe mental illness, would you say, or or not not even mental illness, but just just emotions, right? Yeah, I mean, and as a historian, I keep realizing that our own generation's way of divvying up the world and the mind and the body are going to seem outdated and antique hmm. to the next generation. So today, we think about homesickness as an emotion. Um, and uh, you know, nineteenth century people would have thought of it as this physical, moral, right. sentimental condition. Um, so some of it's about these changing categories. Um, uh, that's certainly part of the book. Part of it's also about how America, or I, I think the main question for me was how did Americans learn to leave home? Yeah. Whether they're going to go to college, whether they're going to go work for a corporation, whether they're going to go to grad school, whether they're going to go to summer camp. How did people get used to doing that? Because we take it as natural, uh, particularly in uh, contemporary American society, earlier generations thought it was really kind of unnatural. Um, and so there was a learning process. And right. so the history of homesickness reveals that. Well, and you give a lot of examples in your book. This basically is your book, but uh, what what, mm-hmm. what are some of the social forces and, and, and other, you know, events that have made homesickness an affliction throughout American history? And would you say that it's a particularly American affliction or not? You know, that's a great question. Um, when I started the project, uh, I came into it having read a lot of um, observers of American life, like Alexis de Tocqueville, who in Democracy in, Americans, uh, in, sorry, Democracy in America said Americans were naturally restless. They moved with ease. They never looked back. And I just sort of took for granted that he was right. So I'd heard about people dying of nostalgia in Switzerland. And I thought, that never Doesn't ever square. happened in America. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I actually, it was when I um, moved out here to Utah, um, away from my uh, family, but with my husband, and we were in a place we really wanted to be. And nevertheless, I felt somewhat displaced. I I love it here, um, but I also had longings for Midwestern culture. And Mm -hmm. um, 
then I thought, well, maybe I'm a freak because clearly Americans aren't supposed to feel this way. Um, and uh, I started poking around in the archives and um, uh, I found so much homesickness in letters and journals and diaries of other people on the move who felt the same way. Um, but I think we had learned a, a certain modern emotional style, which is that you don't talk about the pain of displacement. You just take it as kind of the natural order of um, life in a capitalist, a geographically mobile society. Um, and so when I started thinking, like, maybe there's a story here, I, I began to explore. And um, to to answer your question, is it a distinctively American um, feeling? On the one hand, um, Americans like to think of themselves as restless pioneers who, you know, take their covered wagons into the sunset and never look back. Um, and so if you followed that mythology, you'd say, well, Americans never were homesickness. Uh, but as I've pointed out... Um, Home is where fact, the heart is, for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's this abundant evidence that they really were. Um, so it's definitely a, a phenomenon in America, even though we've neglected it um, to study it before this. Um, but I think America may be um, afflicted with it more than other places because we are a nation of immigrants. Um, and uh, uh, people sometimes who... Uh, came willingly. Um, a lot of people who were brought here against their will. Um, all, you know, everybody here, um, with the exception of Native Americans, is from someplace else, and Native Americans themselves were forced to move. So, right. the the experience of movement is such a fundamental current in American life, and um, so I think it's a very American thing to feel homesick, even though we don't talk about it. What are some of the events that you describe in your book as being particularly impactful on our American understanding of movement and the resulting homesickness? Uh, I think there are a couple big events. Um, one is the Enlightenment, which um, introduces to uh, Americans a new ideology of individualism and um, instructs people that they should go and maximize their opportunity, go to um, raise their status, um, explore um, their options, um, and sometimes do that in the presence of their families, but often strike out on their own. So just that the concept uh, of social mobility even exists. Yeah. That you're not like stuck um, in one thing from birth to death, that you can actually improve your station in life. Absolutely. And um, during the colonial period, when you know, Puritans and others first began to settle um, the East Coast of North America, the, the doctrine was that God had put you where he wanted you, both geographically and socially, and he did not want you to um, rise up. Um, or leave your station, he wanted you to stay where you were. Right. Um, and so when the Enlightenment philosophers begin to say, well, individuals have in their power to de define their own place in the world, um, that, that ideology is really powerful. In many ways, it's really liberating. It also sets people in motion. Um, For those of they, us out here who, who maybe, maybe have, have forgotten when the Enlightenment occurred, what time period are we talking about? <laughs> Um, 18th century, uh, primarily, um, right. in, in America, mm -hmm. a little earlier um, in Europe. Um, but um, uh, So the, the period um, coinciding with the, the, the revolution here in this country. Right, right. As people are kind of severing ties with England, they're also realizing they can sever ties with, you know, um, sort of the social, uh, the social order and that they can 
re-scramble their positions. Um, so the Enlightenment is a big has a big uh, impact on people. But, it you can't do, the, but, but you can't do this unless you just get the hell out of wherever you are, seems to be the... Or a lot of people believe that. Yeah, okay. um, and early America is beset with people thinking that, you know, there's going to be a land boom in Georgia. I better move to Georgia. There's going to be a land boom in Ohio. I better move to Ohio. Um, uh, people talked about them as fevers. I've got Alabama fever because I think there's going to be really fertile land there or um, uh, Genesee Valley fever. Um, So um, people felt almost stricken with these um, really contagious um, longings for profit and opportunity. And um, so that set a lot of people in motion. And we see it kind of play out in the census between 1800 and 1850. um, More people leave their home states than any other period of American history. Over 50% of people cross state lines in pursuit of um, opportunity, um, as well as some people who like enslaved people who are who are being um, brought um, Mm -hmm. not willingly Mm -hmm. um, um, with the you know, uh, their white masters who are seeking new land, seeking um, new crop possibilities. So um, that period of immense mobility in the 19th century really, um, I think, sets the template for how we see ourselves as a nation, as a nation of pioneers. Um, We begin to accept that mobility is just the American way. Um, And uh, while that's happening, uh, lots of people are moving west. They're going to follow the overland trail, um, but in their diaries, they're writing, you know, I long for home, or this is so unnatural to be so far from you. Um, uh, and so there's this um, quiet but very prevalent drumbeat of anxiety about leaving home, sadness about leaving home. Um, diaries, letters are all filled with records of it. Um, and during the mid-19th century, you begin to see doctors um worry about the emotional effects Mm -hmm. of displacement. Um, uh, So first, kind of civilians feel it in their daily life. They probably use the word homesick. Um, And then uh, during the Civil War, they begin to also adopt the medical diagnosis of nostalgia sometimes to talk about themselves. Um, And that word really spreads across America um, during and after the Civil War. Right. And so coming into the modern era here, I want to switch and talk to you a little bit about this, the, 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 the college part of it, which is interesting to me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a seasonal concern, you know, that, um, people in my industry spend a lot of time thinking about. And obviously the parents of the children, perhaps even perhaps less so than the the kids I would imagine are, are Mm -hmm. thinking about this, but, um, you know, I I wonder when going away to college became a national trope, and you know, I and I I also wonder. I mean, I know that you know the the uh, you know the early colleges in this country were residential and stuff, but like, why why did why did we choose to adopt? And do you know? I guess you know why we chose to adopt a residential model for colleges that um, made that created an infrastructure that meant that people were going to need to go away to college? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. It's a a really interesting um, query, and I haven't thought about that per se. I mean, I think at first colleges were not as plentiful as they are today, so a lot of them involved going away just to get to the nearest one. Mm -hmm. Um, Some will argue that um, some of the... uh, 
we would call them high schools. They called them academies that sprang up um, in the uh, mid-19th century were in part designed to kind of start training people for um, a life on their own. Um, You're talking about like fancy, sort of, fancy boarding schools and stuff. Yeah, and and the some Grottons were less fancy. And the Phillips and yeah. the Exeters and Andovers and and, and the ones we've forgotten because they kind of faded away. But you know, if you were going to try to get some education, you might have to spend a bit of time away. Um, and you know, the other thing is, in an era when transportation was so slow, distances where we would think, well, people could just live at the college. You know, well, six miles. It's a long way away in mm. 1800 or 1820. Um, you know, you right. read about uh, like Emily Dickinson going just a few towns over in the Pioneer Valley, and she feels like she's in exile um, when she's, uh, um, I think she's in um, from Amherst and going to Northampton, which is pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she feels like it's very, very far away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've heard of young people going for apprenticeships um, and they're going over to the next town, six miles away, and they feel like they are in a, quote, a foreign land. Mm-hmm. Um, so even by our standards where we're like, well, they could live at home, <laughs> it, it, you know, it just wasn't economical or yeah. practical. So um, what do we know about cultural expectations or norms when we talk about going away to college? Because I, I know that, I mean, th- this part feels particularly American to me. Yeah, Um well, I think uh, in many ways it is, um, and because um, we have kind of a competitive college system where part of your status is about where you went, and that's going to propel you on in the race of life, theoretically, right? Um, uh, the whole um, status orientation of mm-hmm. college admissions. Um, you're supposed to be kind of willing to sacrifice home ties um, to to maximize profit um, in the future, right? And um, you're supposed to sort of sacrifice short-term interest for lo- for long-term interest. It's part of our um, belief in delayed gratification that you put up with some pain now and you get um, opportunity, profit, pleasure um, in the years to come. Uh, so in the 20th century, that definitely becomes more and more a norm. And we see mass mass um, departures for college, really the mid-20th century, when um, larger and larger shares of the American population, some propelled by uh, the GI Bill, are going um, to college for the first time. Um, I found records of college orientations from the 1930s, which were designed to um, to kind of help people accustom themselves to life away from home, life in a big institution. Um, so it's already on people's radar screens by the 30s that this may be a problem of adjustment mm-hmm. um, and it will it will take off. You know, I think um, something else that's going on is uh, after World War II, the expectation is that once you graduate from high school, you'll move out of your parents' house mm. and go to college or set yourself up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we put a bigger and bigger emphasis on becoming independent. Um, by 18, by 21, that's kind of in defiance of hundreds of years of history where people did leave home, but they left home much later, like late 20s. Um, in, once they uh, got married and once started they got a family and, of their own. And, right. Right. So, um, and had means to do so. So today, you know, we get worried about boomerang kids and um, kids who have failed to launch into independence. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really a concern that happens um, 
mid 20th century. Um, and so the norm becomes, well, you're going to go to college, you're going to, if you have any homesickness, you're going to work it out at college, you're never going to look back to home except for like Christmas and Thanksgiving with your family, right? I mean, that's the yeah. end of the home tie. So um, the pressure to live up to that model is really a um, starts in, uh, to grow in intensity in the mid 20th century. Um, so to the extent that you're, you know, you're talking about individuality and, uh, the development of it, a big part of this is the discomfort that comes with leaving. Yeah. And, you know, in the 19th century, if you left home and you longed for your wife or you longed for your parents, depending what stage of life you were in, um, that was seen as kind of a noble sentiment, like, yes, you, you should go off in search of opportunity, but don't wander too far. And it's normal as you wander to long for what you've left behind. That makes you a good moral person um, that you would care about your parents or your mm -hmm, spouse. Mm -hmm. um, in the 20th century, it became seen as something dysfunctional, that you were too needy, yeah. um, that you were um, somehow you know, your parents had messed up in their child rearing and um, hadn't taught you to be independent. Um, and so it was seen as a mark against you that um, you felt pain. Um, there are psychologists starting in the 1920s who say to avoid having children who are too tied to the apron strings, parents should just shake hands with them and never kiss them. Um, you should never hold them <laughs> um, because um, this will just foster dependency and our economy, our society requires independence. And I think we don't say that anymore, but we've still internalized this idea that um, people should be able to sever ties easily. Well, and you talk about, you bring up the, the economy and it seems that, um, you know, there's a conversation that I had with an economist where we talked about uh, New York State's Excelsior Scholarship Program, which will pay for your in-state college tuition at a certain level of income, uh, provided you remain in the state for four years after graduation. And, and, and one of the things that he told me is that this is the most damaging part of the plan, which, you know, underscores to me the extent to which movement and mobility, particularly like almost exclusively leaving home, being, you know, one of your biggest... Um, bits of, of, of individual capital as a college grad and how the extent to which has become codified in our society. Yeah, you know, um, there were all these studies out two or three years ago about um, how the American economy was growing sluggish because of our declining mobility rates and people's unwillingness to move. Um, and uh, there were uh, a number of people saying, you know, this is a real problem and people should be able to pull up stakes um, easily, otherwise we won't have innovation and um, and uh, enough cross-pollinization of ideas and people won't maximize profits. And clearly folks are putting other priorities above economic profit um, in, into their calculus when mm -hmm. they're deciding what to do after college. Um, but I know economists really do worry about that. Um, I do think that they're probably pushing a particular model of economic growth that um, requires a rootless workforce um, and that maybe their means of assessing what's uh, economically good doesn't necessarily square with what's psychologically good. What do you know about, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question, but what do you, what do you know about the, the, I guess, to the extent that people sacrificed, you know, the comfort of home for the discomfort of being in and amongst a whole bunch of people that were in the same condition who are all coming from different places. And I'm thinking mainly about, you know, people that came from, 
you know, the uh, an agrarian lifestyle to an urban lifestyle. I don't know. Like, what what did you learn in your research about the about the benefits of having done that? In, in, in at least in in terms of how it how it might have uh, played against the homesickness, like did people did did you find over the course of time as these grand mixtures were happening uh, in cities around the country that people were finding this to be amazing and fascinating and worth it, or you know because the title of your book is homesickness, you you tend to investigate <laughs> the op the opposite truth, but but yeah, what do you what do you know about that? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, you know, you find a real mix of feelings and it's it's hard to generalize across the entire country, even though I, I, I tried to do that. But I also tried to break down a little bit. And I think, you know, there are some people who come to America and the thought of home is always with them 40 years later, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are others who come and um, often it was once they put down roots by having a family of their own that um, they could think more about the future of the generations they were um, giving birth to rather than their parents and the places they'd come from. That seemed to be a big transitional moment. Um, Sometimes um, people would, uh, you know, kind of go back and forth about where did they really belong. And that was something that really fascinated me was that there were these people who would long and long and long to return to Greece or Italy um, or, you know, Russia um, and then um, then they they sometimes would. Um, there are lots of people who go back and forth across the Atlantic mm-hmm. um, and across the Pacific, um, and then they, they go home, and it's not at all like they imagined it, and they come back to America, mm-hmm. and it's not quite the same. Um, so sometimes, you know, uh, we end up calling many places home, um, and, uh, you know, so I think there were there was a range of responses over time. Um, one thing I think that Americans have become very good at um, is – trying to replicate a sense of home in a new place. Mm-hmm. Um, and the consumer culture that started to really explode in the late 19th century um, certainly fostered this when you had transatlantic steamships with refrigeration so you could bring over that special brand of Greek goat cheese that came from your village. So this is interesting. So home. there's actually a guy in New York City, um, I learned about him on Instagram, who drives around and in the trunk of his car, he's got like candy and stuff that you can't get in this country. Yeah, yeah. And that's such a potent um, thing. That was one of my favorite parts was thinking about the food um, that people longed for. And I mean, Twix often it was milk. Like, I've never heard of such a thing, but it's, it's like $10 a bottle, you know, for this like gross, <laughs> this disgusting. Is it Twix bars mixed in milk? I think it's just like Twix. It's like chocolate milk, but it's like Twix flavor. You know what I mean? Like they make candy right, bar right. And milk. Like, Where is that from? I have no idea. I have no clue. Um, <laughs> I'll have but to it's investigate. Just, I, but I, I shouldn't be allowed there. I know that much. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, it's, it, sometimes it's like packaged goods. Sometimes it's the unpackaged that... You know, I mean, in the 19th century, it would have come from your dad's olive trees, right? And nothing's mm. going to taste quite like that. Um, or at least you're, that's what cons- you'll tell yourself, right? That this is exactly this. Nothing's better than this one. Yeah, exactly. And even if it's if it's imported from there, it's still going to taste slightly off because your mom's not preparing it for you. <laughs> um, and I, so I think there is this, you know, um, the imagination um, that goes into homesickness is is a big thing as well because huh. people mythologize it right yeah um, and and nothing can live up to that mythology right yeah that uh, that actually makes me wonder what are some of the what are some of the strategies that that people have employed that you know you found to be the most interesting or successful 
in combating this uh, notion of homesickness? Um, one big thing was gathering with people from the same place you were. And I'm not sure if that's sure. a great strategy for college students or not, but it certainly worked for immigrants, for um, African-Americans moving from Mississippi to Chicago. You know, you could be with folks um, from the same town in well, Sicily a, uh, or the same time in Mississippi. Um, right. I mean, I think, it's a, I think it's a pretty common phenomenon in, in, in colleges with substantial international student populations, for sure. Right, right, right. That um, that you can kind of recreate a sense of the familiar in a very unfamiliar place. And um, I was so intrigued to learn of, you know, um, basically ethnic neighborhoods that reproduced the same ethnic neighborhood back in the homeland. So you'd have a branch of the church or the synagogue. You would have, um, uh, you know, half of your cousins on one side of the Atlantic and half on the other. Um, and the gossip network between both communities was uh, alive and well. So people were still kind of surveilling you yeah. to make sure you were behaving properly. Um, so these um, ethnic neighborhoods that we have all over America were a great device um, to sort of um, feel like you weren't um, a complete isolated stranger in a new land. Right. Um, food, as I mentioned, was another big um, big commodity that helped um, kind of assuage homesickness. Um, thank heavens for the rise of the post office um, and international post offices because we take it so much for granted, but um, whether moving within the country um, or moving cross-country, um, correspondence over great distances only really became affordable for people in the um, mid-19th century. Before that, if you were going to go from Ireland to America, you might get a letter every year or two um, mm. in, a, in a good year. Um, so uh, the, the Postal Service certainly um, got a lot of business from, from the displaced. And I think the Postal Service also encouraged people to leave with the promise that they could be in touch um, even across the miles, just as the Internet does the same thing to us today. Well, right? yeah, that's, a, that's a, a perfect uh, transition to a conversation that I'd like to have with you about how technology might be changing um, our sense of place and in particular our um, – in particular, the, the degree to which it might be capitalizing on our on our, our our love of or reliance on sort of nostalgia to feel good about stuff. Um, and yeah. what do you what, what do you make of that? Well, um, I think uh, you see a lot of social media use driven by the desire to reconnect with home um, as a place and. And as a time, as a right? lost time, yeah. And that, that I get, you know, you see these people that are like, oh my God, I haven't heard about this person since fifth grade. And there they are on, on, on Facebook, right? Yeah. And um, it seems like a lot of it, a lot of times people have kind of the same virtual recognition that many 19th century Americans had when they went back um, physically. Like if I go back to the little town I've been longing for it's in It's like Italy. a drug, right? Like you get a hit, you get a, a big powerful hit of something that releases all these chemicals in your brain. And it, <laughs> it would strike, it strikes me as the, the Facebook folks and the, the, the psychologists that they employ have figured, have figured out that this is a, this is a powerful commodity. Right. Well, that longing is certainly something to capitalize on. I do wonder though, once like, once you reconnect with a fourth grade friend, you kind of realize that Oh, that fourth grade friend is not the same person yes. she was in fourth grade. Neither is my village in Italy. Oh, wow, right? they're much I mean, more successful than me. <laughs> right, what right, went right. wrong? 
<laughs> Some, you know, but things have changed over the last 20 years, 30 years, and this place or time you've been longing for is long gone and irrecoverable, right? And isn't that like, yeah, I mean, isn't it, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, that that seems like, it seems like a real risk that you're taking, right, to delve into that stuff, that you're, you're, you're either, you know, the, 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 the power of realizing that, you know, you can never go home again, right? Um, is, is, uh, is in fact, is quite powerful and probably at least for a lot of people, powerfully negative. Um, and, and as as a result of, uh, like I said, a, a kind of a risky thing to engage in. Yeah. And I don't think people necessarily realize the risk at the beginning, um, because they do believe you can go home again. And it's only this moment when you're back, even if it's in a digital space, right. But, um, where you're like, huh, this is all there is to this relationship is like a thumbs up or a, yeah. you know, a little like or a little heart or whatever. They don't want to see you. They don't want to meet with you at the local coffee shop to catch up about the last 20 years. It's not, yeah, right. And even if you they're did meet with them. They're married now. They're, they're not interested. <laughs> well, and yeah, and even if you did meet with them, it, it just would, um, you'd realize, okay, we've our lives have diverged so dramatically. Well, unless you that, go into it with yeah. a bit of a different objective. Yeah. I mean, so it depends how people do it. But I think uh, sometimes these technologies make us think that time and space can be transcended and mm. that we can travel um, through them and be back wherever we want to be. And um, and it's, it sets us up for a lot of um, unfulfilled hopes in many cases. Right? Yes. I'm not discounting that yes. it has. I mean, I've, I've, I've noticed my friends who are from other states or other countries and and the joy they get in sustaining ties but usually those are ties that were up to the present right and they've been they aren't after 40 years they're after um you know i i had to leave this country to come to the u.s um i i talked to you the day before i left um those ties were alive and strong up till the very moment of departure, right. which is something different than, you know, graduating from high school and then not seeing somebody for 50 years. <laughs> One of the ideas that you explore returning to this, this uh, going away to college idea is that, um, that technology is making it easier. I mean, that is putting it mildly for parents and students to stay in touch uh, when they yeah. go away to college and that it might not be a good thing. I have mixed feelings, you know, um, certainly child psychologists, um, uh, especially those um, coming out of mid-century models of childhood independence and adolescence development would argue that separation is important and needs to happen and that parents shouldn't be helicopter hovering folks monitoring all the time with their um you know, whatever they're doing on social media, monitoring their kids or calling all the time. Um, and those of us of a certain age can remember the once a week call from the payphone down the hall in college. And that was our experience of being in touch with our parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely a sea change that um, our smart our smartphones have enabled. Um, so I, you know, when I was finishing up the book and I finished it in 2011, um, there was a, this whole discourse like our parents um, impeding their children's emotional development by um, being on the phone with them all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, people would be in contact 10 or 20 times a week with their kids. Well, or maybe um, not, not even, not even that they actually are, but the, 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 the possibility exists to do that. Yeah. Right. And so you're like, do I, don't I, you know, and that there's, <laughs> that if you don't do it in every day, like when you, do you know what I mean? 
yeah no and that that it that it opens up yeah because for for us the of uh, as i say a certain age um going you know it was like we didn't have all the money in the world to go um spend on on the payphone that you had to shove quarters in to call our to call our parents you um, do so that old collect a- call man people don't know about that anymore <laughs> yes. the, the parents were not happy to get the collect call yeah, well, <laughs> but yeah <laughs> they made out like bandits compared to the costs associated with college today that parents are dealing that's with. true yeah. that's true <laughs> it was, relatively speaking that was a small price to pay yeah but you know i also became like you know i have lots of criticisms of our phones and our social media but I I also wonder if this idea that we all should be rugged individualists and and separate from our families with ease whether it's at summer camp or college and and sever those ties easily is the greatest thing to endorse either. So I kind of, you know, on the surface it's like I as a faculty member who doesn't love helicopter parenting <laughs> um, when it when it um you know, when I run into it, I, I nevertheless thought this is kind of a nice model of um, family ties that are really strong, and maybe there's something worth celebrating. I mean, so long as your offspring can succeed in college um, and and finish their degree, um, do we really have to push this idea of the wholly autonomous right. um, individual? Well, that seems um, to be the, that seems to be the biggest. <sighs> point of contention I, f- I feel like in the in the, the debate over helicopter parenting is like where's the line yeah yeah and clearly there are lines that are crossed and and you know um they developed entirely new cross. uh you know apparatuses to describe parenting now it's moved on to snow plows and <laughs> right right you know, that so, they just yeah. took and take off all the, the like barriers the in the way helicopters <laughs> with like you know missiles and like 50 caliber machine guns <laughs> on them like it's you know it's 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 really it's really gotten gotten out there yeah and and i think you know uh, while i i have more mixed feelings about maybe the parents intervening in the academic um you know course of college um the idea of having a close and affectionate uh, relationship with your parent doesn't seem to me a bad thing in in an age when communication is cheap and accessible um i i guess i find it hard to condemn that yeah i do think i do think um it doesn't necessarily solve homesickness because i know a lot of people who are in constant touch then end up longing for it all the more mm. uh so some people had predicted you know going back to the telegraph that the telegraph would end homesickness then it was going to be you know the telephone then it was going to be the smartphone i don't think any of them end homesickness but maybe they cushion the blow yeah what do we know about i mean what does history tell us about you know anything i mean i don't know maybe we've never been in a time like this where we can actually talk about you know, a right amount of contact uh, with a family member or with people back home or with, you know, that space and time. Yeah, I, I think Americans take for granted that individualism is the way to be, right? That we are separable, severable, movable peoples. And I think that's so foreign to to other cultures. Um, and... Uh, um, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a child rearing expert, uh, but it it does seem like sometimes focusing on the communal um, might be beneficial to us as a society and not as lonely. And that does feel very cultural to me. You know, I mean, and that that does seem like something that uh, um, is a problem that 
you know, I've certainly witnessed in sharply for the past couple of years and certainly since the election of Donald Trump. And, you know, it's something that has got me thinking a lot about the fact that we've got a problem in this country with nostalgia um, that I, I, I think about it as a national affliction, you know, that, you know, when you look at these red hats and they say, make America great again, right? It's a backwards looking concept. And I have been doing a lot of thinking about this. And it's one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you to get your opinion on this is because I think that as a society, we do the past way better than we do the future, right? Like we can make the past look as good as we want. (laughs) But when you look at any like, you know, like, so you go on these like, uh, you know, video streaming services and stuff. um, Sci fi is lumped in with horror. Right? Oh, like, that's interesting. Yeah, the future dystopia. is always dystopia, with the exception of Star Trek. My wife will remind mm-hmm. me, Star Trek is the <laughs> only place, and this is something that uh, uh, Peter Thiel uh, has said, you know, when, when asked in a New York Times interview, do you prefer Star Wars or Star Trek? He said, oh, Star Wars all day long. That's the capital one, Star, or the capitalist one. Star Trek, you know, you've got the replicator. Nobody needs to buy anything. Like, it's the, that's the oh, communist one. Like, who cares? You know? And so, like, but this is what I'm, like, and I, and I think it breaks, I don't know if it breaks along right-left lines, but I feel like, you know, and, and this is a question I have for you, like, you know, as a result, like, is nostalgia a thing to be considered as necessarily good or bad? You know, I think it all depends on what you're longing for, right? Um, Because it's a longing for a past. And one thing that was interesting to me when I wrote the book was that people on both sides of the partisan divide saw a value in nostalgia um, and also had concerns about it. Um, And I think a lot of times people were remembering or longing for different pasts. And that's another feature of American life is we have so many... um, Lived experiences. Parts of our, yeah, yeah. That, um, so, you know, it can be an inherently conservative um, emotion. Well, I shouldn't say inherently. It can be a conservative emotion, but it can also be um, a, a very um, radical emotion. And it depends what past you're harking back to and trying to resurrect in the present, right? It could be, um, yeah. Do you think that this is, do you think this is the case? Do you agree with me? Susan? Well, I... <laughs> is this a problem? I, I like, think, is this what's going on right now? Is it we're looking, we're looking, we're looking about at, at like, I, I think it is, it is almost, it's more impossible to try to get back to a past that, that never existed, frankly, or that we think mm-hmm. existed, than it is to get to a future that, that has never existed, but that, hey, why not? Well, and I think, I think, um, no matter what you're nostalgic for, and this was true of, you know, people on the move in the 19th century, and it's true of 21st century Americans who are staying in place and just thinking they know what the 1950s was like, right? Is our memory um, collectively and individually isn't particularly accurate, uh, and our visions of what our own and our society's past were like aren't particularly accurate. So I, I think you're right that it it doesn't make much sense to try to to resurrect the past, whatever past it is you're longing for, that it would be much easier to kind of, um, you know, say, uh, we're not going to go back, we're going to go forward, and that that would be a much, um, in some ways, people could agree on their terms, too, right? Because when you when you say you're going to go and um, return to the values of an earlier age, not everybody agrees on what those values were or what that age was like, whereas if you can espouse something for the future, um, maybe it's clearer what you're aiming for. I don't know. 
I'm a historian, so I like to <laughs> yeah, no, um, I, this is stay the, focused on the past rather than the. <laughs> well, that's the th- you know, it's 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 like I th- I feel like people think they look to the past and they say, well, at least we know how that turned out, so let's try that again, um, as if to as- presume that it turned out well, um, you know, or that because you could ever, I mean, turned out well yeah, for that- your subgroup of society. Um, but uh, ignoring if just so much, so much. <laughs> I just, it's yeah. uh yeah. We're I don't know if we're gonna resolve this here today, but, uh, in, but I appreciate. Yeah, it and again. that's certainly the yeah. modern sense of nostalgia, right? Is um yeah. Is, is Let's go back to that the, place and time. And I would argue, it's, you know, it's it's the, it's the it's the the white emphasis on white picket fence, you know, uh, Levittown sort of li- post war livelihood where everything was you know, a certain kind of way. And, you know, and I think about the fact that this is a, this is a, 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 a trope and a vision that is being, um, mainly perpetrated by baby boomers. And that got me thinking about generational labels. What are these good for? You know, when we talk about baby boomers and Gen X and Gen Z, uh, and, and are, are, are those real things? Like, is that, is that a, do those are those real things that we that, that that you can quantify or something like? Why do we have those? Are they and and is every generation before the current one better? Um, I <laughs> you know I think sometimes they're used for blame for the generation that preceded you, yes. right? The baby boomers are self-absorbed, or the baby boomers are materialistic. Um, but uh, I I think they may be rough approximations of how people grew up under a certain economic order under um, a certain kind of political system that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, our, our, our realities are certainly going to be different than um, kids who grew up during the new deal, you right. know? Um, and so to that extent, I think they're useful, but um, there's more than just a time frame that defines your values, right. Um, or your dispositions. And so they're useful up to a point, but I think um, those of us who were born at the, beginning of one era or the end of another, always know that, you know, I'm after the baby boomers, but, you know, I can, my husband is a baby boomer and trying to figure out, okay, I think we have more in common than these labels would allow, allow us to believe. Well, right? and it seems another, another way of, of ordering time and experience, right? That you can say, you know, when I was growing up, man, we had record players and that was just so much better than you know downloading stuff uh and that i mean and that that must have happened just throughout time no yeah and you know you can go back um to the ancient greeks and i think it's um the hesiod which is i think written about 7th or 8th century bc um bce and already then they're longing for the golden age and they feel that they have declined since then um so uh there's this uh you know longing for a, a lost time that goes way back in history, right? Um, it's certainly not just a modern phenomenon. Some will suggest that maybe because our culture changes so very rapidly today that we're more prone to it than, um, or it's a more commonplace experience, but it was pretty common um, in the 19th century too. Well, and um, the, as industrial and the, was happening. Right, and that the tools of our time change even quicker than they ever have before. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, um, and so your, your, your perception, you know, your self your, your perception of your, your own sort of obsolescence, I think maybe these days 
uh, appears to be appears in, in in starker relief and quicker than maybe it did before. Do you think that's true? Because we we measure it by our tools. Yeah, I think that's a big a big signal. And um, you know, I, I as I mentioned, I I have made a like a political choice to have a flip phone, but I think people um, associate it with senior citizens. Um, and I'm always looked at rather strangely, like, why do you have this? Um, and because, it, you know, that technology puts you in a particular cohort, theoretically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these are markers. And uh, and certainly the millennials, um, the iGen, right, mm-hmm. are, um, are no doubt going to bear the imprint of... Um, of the effects of, of their tools too. Well, these young whippersnappers could learn a thing or two about the value of anachronism, don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, if you could write an updated chapter to this book, given that it came out, you said in two thousand eleven, um, mm-hmm. what would you what would you write? Um, I, you know, while. While certainly, like we've gone to the latest iPhone, all the social media platforms were already there um, by the end of the, the. In my last chapter, I talk about Facebook, and yeah. um, I don't think I talked about Instagram. But you know, same thing. So I don't think those tools have fundamentally reformed or reshaped the feeling. Um, it is interesting, and I, I would have to do more research on this. Uh, so these are very sketchy comments, but you know, all the. All the things we're hearing today about the millennial generation, that they're less materially motivated, um, that maybe um, they want experience rather than money, um, I think that might be something that will reshape our expectations about how much people move, um, whether they should move. Um, It seems to me that those particular values might make you more open to staying put. Um, and finding community rather than just prosperity. Um, mm-hmm. So that might be a place to go. Hmm. Really cool. Well, I thank you so much for talking to me about all this stuff. I could talk to you for a real long time about it was really interesting. Thank a lot you. of stuff. And the uh, unfortunate Ogden, Utah is not really on the way to anything for me. Um, <laughs> New York might well, be you- on the way to anything to you for you, though. So let me know if you're in well, town. Go talk about some of this stuff more. Okay, sure will. What do you think? Are you in, the, are you in town anytime soon? New York City? I may come to Brooklyn. For hey, Brooklyn I know what that Festival. is. That's not that. Our, that counts. Okay. Because <laughs> our, our bored, lonely, angry, stupid book is going to be featured. There, yes, so. please. Talk about that. What is it and when is when can we when can we find it? Okay. So it, it came out May 1st. Um, from Harvard University Press. Um, I wrote it with my husband, Luke Fernandez, who's on the faculty of the School of Computing um, and uh, was a software developer for a couple decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and together we examined all those questions. Is Facebook making us lonely? Is Google making us stupid and distracted? Mm-hmm. Um, are we becoming less capable of um, tolerating boredom? Are we getting angrier? Um, is social media making us narcissistic? So it was, we started with the questions, what is social media doing to our personalities? And those questions abound in the popular press. And we looked at those questions and we said, wait a second, we think there's a bigger story and you can't just say, are we becoming lonelier than we were in 1990? 
because uh, we both think that people's emotions change across generations and that right. what it meant to be lonely, for instance, in 1820 is not what it meant to be lonely in 2020. Um, hmm. So we kind of trace the history of being narcissistic. Um, how did our technologies change our views on on loneliness, narcissism, anger, um, boredom, and the like? Um, so, um, and the title combined, again? Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid. Love it. Man, this is really, I can't wait to, to I got to go read it now. And um, I am. We'll have you back talk about that probably. Oh, that'd be great. Um, this is this is really great. I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this stuff and um, and uh, keep up the, the the great work. Thank you so much. And um, have a great summer. You as well. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Could literally talk to her for hours about this stuff. So cool. Okay, fact check. Weber State tuition, by the way, is in-state $5,523, out-of-state $4,749, and you West Coasters who can participate in the Western Undergraduate Exchange qualifying programs make the WUE, the WUE tuition, $7,338, and she can be your teacher. Everybody, apply to Weber State. So on the matter of homesickness and college, college freshmen wrestle with homesickness, sure, but a lot of the time it's magnified by the weight of the decision that they've made to be in that place in particular, assuming they've had options to choose from. Being away from home is a tough time to realize that that very being away is the choice you've made, and it's really common for students to say, oh my god, I made a terrible decision. Students may say to themselves, I've got to transfer because I don't like this place. But in most cases, these ideas are conflated, that you don't really dislike the place, it's just that it's weird and it's unfamiliar and it's uncomfortable because it's not your home, because it's not familiar. Perhaps we've bought so fully into the concept of a perfect fit school that this discomfort feels like perhaps you've been told a dangerous lie, which you have. That lie being that there is a perfect fit school out there for you. And to that point, here is where we revisit the canonical article, Don Quixote, College Choice and the Myth of Fit by Mark Moody, in which he writes, As teenagers, we are exceptionally vulnerable to a special variety of Quixote's madness. Our imaginations electrified by the Fisk Guide. We ride off and tilt at collegiate windmills. These are some of the first decisions we make that will impact our future directions, but we are still largely unshaped, full of potential and possibility. Uncertainty is kind of exciting if we can get students comfortable with the relative equality of each of these adventures. There will be good and bad classroom experiences, defining friendships and emotional breakups, unexpected and inspiring opportunities anywhere. Most importantly, those moments that challenge us, that push us, that make us uncomfortable when we come face to face with the unfit of a place, those are the ones that really allow for growth and lead us to healthy adulthood. We should describe fit as an ongoing process. A good fit college should come off the rack a little baggy and unflattering. With time, a student grows into it. Tailor it too soon, and you're stuck with a style that might come to embarrass you, the way those high school graduation portraits tend to do after a while. I have linked to this uh, article in the show notes, along with some other further reading on the topic, uh, if you guys want to dig into it. So the weirdness is supposed to be there. This is how we grow, by putting ourselves into purposeful, safe positions of discomfort, interacting with others in that space, and then realizing, hey, I am not dead. 
Or better yet, hey, I can actually operate in a place that is not my home or community or bubble, which includes and is particularly difficult for some parents. Hey, I can do stuff on my own and without my parents getting involved. This is certainly what we hope for when those of us who do what I do guide students through searching for schools to apply to and one day attend so that they can grow and help others grow and all that stuff. I hope you found this uh, uh, interesting and uh, worth your time. Thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, there's more Crush stuff coming up this summer, so stay tuned and uh, spread love out there, people. Thank you.